0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays.
1: On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said... You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, "'Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land?' Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her her out and buried her beside her husband great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events this is the word of the lord
0: thank you janet very much and please keep the bible open where you have it and um, if you need to share with the neighbor to make sure they can see as well And there's somewhere on the, the various pieces of paper you're given, I'm sure you'll find a corner to write some notes if you want to. Shall we pray again? Let's pray. Almighty God, you know all. You see all. And you've given us this your word so that we might see, might understand. We ask for your help to hear your voice. We ask for your help to have confidence in the transforming power of the gospel and as well that you might expose and examine our hearts that we might be more fit to be called your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Morag and I have a friend from uni days. She's called Helen. And some years ago, Morag invited Helen to a Christianity Explored course. And if you don't know, that's a, a course seven weeks in length. It takes you through the basics of the Christian faith. Now, those of you who've, who've invited someone to something like that before, I, I guess you know that there's a sense of excitement when your friend agrees to come. There's also a bit of a sense of trepidation as well. Uh, you, you kind of wonder what they're going to make of it all. Um, you find yourself wondering, or at least we did, What is it about this course, and therefore about the gospel, that that will commend itself to Helen? You know, what what will she like? What will grab her? What will she really enjoy? And on the other hand, what, if anything, will put her off? There were plenty of things in that first category, things about the course that we were confident that Helen would love. And I think chief among those was the idea that she was going to spend some time amongst God's people. We had real confidence in the people who were running the course. Um, knowing that Helen would be, uh, if you like, entering the community of believers, and um, people who were genuinely interested in her, in people who really wanted to help, who wanted to try at least and answer her questions, the, the kind of loving community where people were willing to share their lives with her. On the other hand, um, as we approached week three, we began to feel a bit nervous. See, in, in the set material for the course that week Helen was going to come face to face with the Bible's idea that God is utterly holy and as a result he hates sin and human wickedness and he upholds the highest moral and ethical standards and what's more Helen would be learning to quote from the course book all of us sin and none of us can deal with our sin by ourselves You kind of wonder what your friends are going to make of that kind of a stark claim. At least we did. It raises the question, doesn't it? What is it about the gospel message that attracts people? What commends the gospel? What causes the church to grow? That kind of question gets us to our first heading. If you want to write it down, it's this. The unstoppable word. So if you've been here, like Tim said, over the last few weeks, you will know that we're studying this book of Acts. Um, It's a book that Luke wrote, the same Luke who wrote the gospel. And you'll know that he is keen to explore just that kind of question. What makes the church grow? And I think he wants to give us confidence that the message of Jesus will spread, it will grow, it will take new ground. Luke wants to give us confidence that the message of, of the gospel, the message about Jesus, it will spread, it will grow. It will be unstoppable because... It has its origin with an utterly unstoppable God. So, for example, we've seen so far Luke, uh, in, in Acts chapter 1, Luke wants to give us confidence that the messengers, that is the apostles, he um, wants us to give us confidence in them, um, those who are, are appointed by God as, if you like, foundational communicators of the message. In chapter 2, he wants to give us confidence that um, these fairly normal simple men have been given god's resources to complete this task that is they've been empowered by the holy spirit and later in that same chapter luke wants to give us confidence that in the transformative power of the message you see the community of believers there at the end of chapter two and you can see that their lives have been utterly transformed Their thinking their behavior is is utterly different And then where we were a couple of weeks ago in chapter 4, when the apostles, apostles, that is the messengers, when they face fierce opposition from from the powerful religious authorities who want to shut them down and shut down the message, we see there that nothing will restrain the messengers. The message won't be squashed. The message about Jesus will not be contained. The word is ultimately unstoppable. Why? Because it has its origin with an utterly unstoppable god and so that brings us to where we land today chapter 4 verse 23 and you'll see that peter and john who are two of those apostles have just been released by the authorities who were trying to threaten them in order to silence the message does it work not really look at verse 24 it only leads to fervent prayer for more boldness so they pray sovereign lord you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then skip on for a moment to, to verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. The authorities of the day try to shut down the message. But the real irony is that the apostles appeal for help to the highest authority of all, to the Creator. And so, in word and in deed, despite the opposition, the message about Jesus will go forward, will take ground. There's a small group from our church who've just come back from a a conference in Africa, meeting with churches and church leaders from all around the world. And their story is this. It is in those parts of the world where the church faces the most fierce opposition and we're right to pray for it to end as we have been but it is those parts of the world where the church is growing there are churches in Africa that have to plant dioceses not just new churches because the growth is so great and I wonder is that your view of the message about Jesus? You know, do, do you expect the church to grow? do we expect that some of our friends at least will be persuaded by the message will become followers of Jesus is that how we think? Or is it that our culture, the culture we live in, has has caused us to buy the lie that no one's really interested? And worse still, that God is not able to grow his church in face of opposition. thing is, that kind of opposition is nothing new. And we've just seen, haven't we, the apostles themselves faced it. But more than that, look what they pray in the middle of their prayer there. You can see that they quote some words from Psalm 2. And they take them and apply them straight to Jesus, who was opposed, plotted against. And kings and rulers set themselves up against him, Herod, Pilate, Jews, Gentiles, a whole world in opposition to God's anointed king. And so they say, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. They stop there. But if you know Psalm 2, you'll know that it continues like this. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. The point is that opposition to Jesus in the end is laughable. Herod, Pilate, all the rest, though they conspired against him. Look at this. This is amazing. Verse 28. Though they conspired against him, they did... What your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. See, they're setting themselves up in opposition to, they're meddling with a God so powerful, he can take their evil actions and use them to his good purposes. And that is a very powerful God indeed. The message about Jesus will not be contained. The word is ultimately unstoppable. Why? Because it has its origin with an utterly unstoppable God. And so I, I guess we, we wait with bated breath to see what will happen next. How, how next in this book of Acts will the church grow? How will it attract new converts to Jesus? Well, what follows are two accounts. You can see them there, hopefully headed in the, in the NIV. The believers share their possessions and then Ananias and Sapphira. They're two accounts which you might think are quite separate, but in fact are intrinsically linked. They're two accounts which even if it seems unlikely at first glance, at least for the latter, are all about the progress of the word. These are two events which contribute to the growth of the church. And you can see that if you look further down in chapter 5. Look there to verse 13 and 14. It says, No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women Believed in the Lord and added to their number. Now, those verses are slightly tricky to unpick, and Ben will help us with those next week. But you can see the bottom line, the conclusion's pretty clear. Whatever else is going on in these two accounts, between chapter 4, verse 32 and chapter 5, verse 11, these events contribute to the growth of the church. In fact, more than that, they give us an insight into what a growing church looks like. And if you've found a corner to make notes, that brings us to our second heading the single minded community. A single minded community. I wonder what your best experience of teamwork is. Have you ever experienced teamwork at its best? You know that moment when a group of people set about some task or project or production together? Maybe for you it's at work or in business. I think for me I've had experiences working in the arts and in music. Where you get a real sense of, of joint venture and purpose. Perhaps you're working towards some event or show or production. There's a real excitement, I think, a real buzz about that. Um, a sense of purpose with a group of people all pulling absolutely in the same direction, aiming for the same goal. Now, I reckon most of the time those experiences are pretty short lived, but they are something of a window, I think, into this community of believers. So have a look, verse 32. It begins like this. All of the believers were one in heart and mind. Which we could skip over quickly, but that is utterly remarkable, isn't it? When someone believes in the gospel, or to use, to use the language of, of Acts chapter two, when someone is cut to the heart, repents and is baptised in the name of Jesus Christ, refi- receives forgiveness of sins, receives the gift of the Holy Spirit, when someone goes through that process of transfer, there is a deep change of mind, of heart, of behaviour. I guess that's not always overnight, nor always all at once, but nonetheless, a real and profound change and new entry into this place, this community, the church, the body of believers, which, as you can see, is, is a community united around what? Around the apostles' teaching And dedicated to supporting that ministry and to caring deeply for each other. For the whole community, the message of the gospel, you get the impression it was the most important thing in life. It's hard to read that and not come to that conclusion, isn't it? It was their absolute priority. I wonder if you look honestly at your life, um, do you see real changes of of heart and mind and behaviour? If you think of yourself as a Christian, however much we all still struggle with sin, and we do, is your life a little bit more Christ-like now than it was before you believed in Jesus? Or, if you've been a Christian for some time, is your life a little bit more like Christ now than it was two, five, or ten years ago? And this is not just about individuals either. As a church... We've got to ask ourselves, is this model of united, wholehearted support for gospel ministry and deep care for each other reflected among us? If ever we see that we don't find change, and I don't say this to undermine assurance, it is wise, sensible, it's just a good idea for us to go back to basics and to consider whether we have properly understood and taken to heart the message of the gospel. In fact, when it comes to examining ourselves in that way, I don't know about you, but I find it quite hard to be self-aware. My wife will probably tell you that. When it comes to being self-aware and trying to examine yourself in that way, here's one thing you might like to do. Think about what you do with your money. The evangelist Billy Graham famously said, give me five minutes with a person's checkbook and I'll tell you where their heart is. And whether or not you still have a checkbook, I don't think I do. I guess the same applies. Here in Acts, you see that the single-minded devotion of the Christian community, most especially you see it in their use of money and possessions, don't you? Verse 32. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, And it was distributed to anyone who had need. I've known Christians who have remortgaged their houses uh, to give tens of thousands of pounds to capital projects to support gospel work. And when the homeless or the struggling or the socially difficult church member knocks on their door, I've seen, I've known Christians drive them to the supermarket there and then to buy them everything they need for the week. I've known Christians who, quite frankly, have huge financial burdens of their own and give enormously to support others who are being trained to do this work of preaching the gospel. The question for us is, is that the kind of generosity that marks us as a church? We get a wonderful little example, a little cameo of this kind of behavior in Joseph. You'll see there, verse 36, he's such an encouragement he uh, quite literally gets a name for it. And then voluntarily, that's important, verse 37, he sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And notice this and all the other examples here are, are not some kind of imposed communism. No, this is different to that. It's spontaneous, voluntary giving and sharing of money and possessions. And what a community, Right? And in a book that's all about the spread of the gospel, it's not exactly difficult, is it, to see why Luke has included this account? You know, who wouldn't want to be part of a church like that? And incidentally, I don't think it's wrong to read this and, and hear little echoes of heaven, of the new creation. You know, believers together, united at last, everyone provided for, no more needy people. You get a hint of an end to suffering and all that kind of stuff. What an advert for the gospel, Not hard to see why Luke's included it. That is until chapter 5. It's inconspicuously headed Ananias and Sapphira in the NIV, but don't be fooled. This is one of the most uh, shocking, um, disturbing, even frightening passages in the New Testament. It starts innocuously enough, doesn't it? Look there chapter 5 verse 1. Now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. It's good. Wonderful. Just like Barnabas. They've they've sold, they're going to give. And we read on, with his wife's full knowledge he kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest to the disciples' feet. And again, it was so far so good, just like Barnabas, and all the rest they weren't obliged to give all the money. And come to that they weren't obliged to sell the field. Um, in the first place and even after he challenges them do you see it there in verse four uh, the apostle peter himself says didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it sold wasn't the money at your disposal yeah the answer is yes see the couple were free to sell or not to sell and they were quite free to give all or part of the money and you can imagine can't you uh, perhaps a, a thoughtful ananias Telling the apostles that he was going to give half to the church and perhaps the other half would be saved for kids' uni fees or or next year's car repairs, that would have been fine. But that isn't what happens. So read on, verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? It seems, therefore, as if Ananias and Sapphira had already told the apostles that they were going to give all of the money. And I think that gets confirmed if you look down to verse 8. You can see where Peter challenges Sapphira, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? So it isn't the lack of generosity that's so gravely serious. It seems like it's the lies and the deceit seems like they wanted the reputation of a, of a giver like Barnabas without the sacrifice of giving and so they lie and I guess they calculate that it's easy enough to deceive people and that's true isn't it if you want to deceive me it's not really very hard what they've forgotten though is is the death of them and that is this that the church is not merely a human organization The church is not merely a human organisation, it's God's church. And what is he like? Well he sees all and he knows all. And he is, as we've seen, unstoppably committed to the growth of his church. Let me show you this, just skip on a few pages to chapter 9 verse 4. And when Saul, who at the time is a Pharisee persecuting the church, meets the risen Lord Jesus, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? That's not what it says, is it? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And the point is, to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus, that is, God. God. And I guess we conclude then that to engage in willful deception of the church, uh, as Peter says Ananias has done, it is to lie to the Holy Spirit, that is God. And so back in in chapter 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. And then moments later, we we follow through the same harrowing process with Sapphira. It is deeply shocking and disturbing. And I guess as we we begin to draw to a close, I guess you're wondering at least three questions. Um, Why so severe a punishment? Could this happen to me? And what on earth am I supposed to learn from this, especially about church growth? The point is clearly made. There is no place in God's church for those who willfully, and this is important, unrepentantly deceive him. See, the church is not merely a human organisation. It's God's church. And what is he like? Well, he sees all. He knows all. And he, as we said right at the beginning of the service, is a holy God. And we are right to fear him. It's not, though, that the church isn't a place for sinners. Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, but who? Sinners. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And don't forget, right, the the apostle, the apostle here who stands in accusation over Ananias and Sapphira, who is it? It's Peter. If you want to talk about sinful deception, well, he's the guy who on the night that Jesus was betrayed, stands outside and pretends he never knew him. Now, the church is, it is a place for sinners. But what does Jesus call sinners to do? He calls them to repent. He calls the spiritually sick to receive the medicine of the gospel. See, there is abundant room, abundant room in God's church for repentant sinful people who are responding to the Holy Spirit's work the spirit that we've heard so much about in the book of Acts so far, responding to the Holy Spirit as he changes them to be more like Jesus. But there is no place for those who for the sake of reputation or whatever else willfully and unrepentantly seek to deceive. I think it's right that these events did cause great fear to grip the early church. I think it's right, frankly, that they do the same for us. So let me say to you very seriously, if you are willfully and unrepentantly living some kind of double life, you're perhaps claiming to be a sincere believer but deceiving those around you, saying you're a Christian but secretly living as if you're not, with your money, with sex, in your relationships, or whatever it is, Then today, today has to be the day it ends. Make today the day it ends. Stop pretending that God doesn't see and doesn't know. Change your mind. Repent. Come back to God. And then I'd suggest that you bring this secret out into the light. And I suggest that you find one close, trusted friend. It could be your spouse if you're married. And tell them. And if you want me to be that person or or Tim or Paul, our vicar, then we will. Only stop believing the lie that God doesn't know. And stop believing the lie that what matters most is what other people think of you. It isn't. And stop believing the lie that the strong Christian is the one who pretends that he has no temptations. Start realising that the strong thing, the mature Christian thing to do is to recognise your own weakness and rely on others to help you. That, after all, is exactly what you did when you came to Christ in the Gospel. There are things in my life that I need to be held accountable for in this way and I have two people who keep me just that way. There used to be one, but I added a second this week because of the warnings in this passage. See, I reckon that in the same way that the previous episode, do you remember, it had echoes of heaven, the believers all together, I think this sorry, disturbing tale of Ananias and Sapphira should also point us to the future. In this instance, it, 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 should, it should lead us to think of future judgment. And here in this case, God chose to bring immediate judgment, and I guess it's within his power to do that today. But whether now or later almost isn't the point this passage rings with the idea that as luke records in his gospel there is a day coming when nothing that is hidden will not be disclosed and nothing is concealed that will not be made known or brought out into the open luke eight seventeen. 17 so whether judgment arrives now or later there is no place in god's church for unrepentant people You might still be asking, though, what on earth this has to do with church growth? It's a good question. I guess you don't need me to tell you the harm that is done by public scandal in the church. I don't feel as if I need to exactly illustrate the point by rehearsing all of the examples. But consider this question. How many millions of people, how many millions of people around the world refuse to pay any attention to God's church and therefore to the gospel because of previous scandals. How many millions? The point is the spread of the gospel happens in in part because of our behavior and the way it commends or not the gospel to others. And for all, I reckon that the culture around us despises much of Christian morality, and I reckon that's increasingly true. What I reckon they find even worse is Christian hypocrisy. So you see, the church that holds firmly to, to high ethical and moral standards, the standards we find in the scriptures, and the church, therefore, that holds fast to the idea that we are, all of us, not good not basically good, but bad, sinful people who need to repent, who need to turn to God, who needs his help. That kind of church is the growing church. Look again, chapter five, verse 13. They, the church, were highly regarded among the people. More and more men and women were added to their number. Morag, she tells me, waited uh, with bated breath for her friend Helen to arrive back from Christianity Explored Week 3. She had been enjoying the course, as I remember, and I think that partly was down to the sort of warmth and generosity of, of the Christian people that, that she met. But what really blew her away was, was session three. It was the session on sin and holiness and God's justice. See, she came home uh, beaming, <laughs> She came home loving the idea that there was a God who was a God of justice, who cares about wrongdoing and cared about people enough to give his son to pay for our sins. A God who in the end comes as judge to put everything right. And Helen is now a Christian. And one more person has been added to our number. Let's pray together. A moment of of quiet to respond to God, as seems right. And then pray using words from the Anglican Prayer Book Almighty God. To whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Amen.